Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, February 8th. Amanda Borsell Don here with our military reporter, Emmanuel Fabian, Knesset correspondent, Carrie Keller-Lynn, and legal reporter, Jeremy Sharon. Hello to all of you. Hi, good morning. Hi. Good morning, Amanda. Full house. It is a full house. Thanks for joining me. Mani will tell us what's happening with the Israeli search and rescue delegations to Turkey and what the plans are moving forward. We'll also hear an on-the-ground update from Judah Ari Gross, who has joined one of the delegations. Jeremy will discuss the ongoing case of the Bedouin camp Khan al-Ahmar, and Kerry will bring us out with a look behind the scenes at the Knesset. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. And we're back. Before we dive in, a minor earthquake hit Israel Tuesday night with tremors reported in Jerusalem and in areas near the capital in the West Bank. The 3.5 magnitude tremor occurred at about 11.15 local time and was centered about 15 kilometers or nine miles southeast of Ariel in the West Bank. As of this morning, there are no known damages or injuries. Manny, let's turn to you. The death toll, unfortunately, is mounting in Turkey and Syria, even as rescuers are continuing to pull out survivors from the rubble. What do we currently know about the work that the Israeli delegations are doing on the ground? So uh, overnight, um, the uh, Israeli Home Front Command Search and Rescue Operations uh, began work. Uh, They were delayed for a bit by traffic and the uh, harsh winter weather. But they did eventually get to uh, the damaged areas in southeastern Turkey. And from what the uh, army released and and information on the ground, uh, two people were rescued in the area overnight, uh, a young woman and uh, a boy. Uh, according to the um, uh, one of the commanders of the search and rescue team, he said that they were traveling to a different damaged area, but locals came up to them and said that they were hearing um, noises coming from from one of the sites. And they went over and they spent four and a half hours uh, working and they eventually got this uh, woman out. She was in relatively good health, only with a a broken pelvis, he said. What are the plans for today, as far as you know? So uh, early this morning, a small team departed uh, for Turkey, uh, part of a larger delegation that will establish a field hospital there. It landed there this morning and it's looking for the the right site where to establish this field hospital. Uh, And later in the day, this uh, large 230-person delegation 
which includes search and rescue experts, um, military medics, health ministry doctors, uh, nurses and paramedics, uh, and other people will will eventually um, establish a, a full-on field hospital to treat the victims because the, um, the Turkish health uh, system is it's at, it's at full capacity right now with all the victims of the uh, of the earthquake. So right now there's a small team on the ground looking for the right site, and eventually later today they will be establishing a, a full-on uh, field hospital. Manny, thank you for that, and we'll say goodbye now. Goodbye. All right. Our reporter, Judah Ari Gross, arrived in Turkey yesterday evening. He sent me a report late last night, so let's hear his first impressions of the quake zone. An Israeli aid delegation touched down in Gaziantep, Turkey, um, on Tuesday evening, landing, as it happens, uh, smack in the middle of a Qatari military aid delegation and an Iranian military aid delegation. It's a pretty rare sight to see those three flags next to each other. The delegation was organized, or the flight was organized by the United Hatzalah uh, Emergency Response Organization, which sent a little over two dozen volunteers, mostly doctors, paramedics, um, and some psychotrauma specialists. Also on board the flight was about a dozen members of the Israeli National Search and Rescue Unit. Um, and there was also a small dele- delegation from the Israel organization. And this was more of a sort of scouting mission for them. They brought over some water purification equipment, but this is mostly for them to sort of get a lay of the land to see um, what further aid they can provide to Turkey and Syria. We stayed in the airport for a few hours before transportation and some other logistics could be organized. Um, But that did give us an opportunity to speak to a a few of the dozens of Turkish people, um, residents of the city of Gaziantep, who were basically displaced because of the earthquakes um, and were settling, um, were seeking refuge in the VIP lounge of the airport. Some of them had their homes damaged and destroyed. Others um, were just staying at the airport because it had electricity and water, um, which the rest of the city didn't, which became apparent as we sort of left the airport and started making our way to a, a rallying point where we were spending the night driving through the city, which is a pretty big city of, you know, some over two million residents. The place was just pitch black because of the power outages. Um, Some of the more sort of public lighting, the street lamps um, and traffic lights were still on. Uh, But other than that, there were some signs and uh, a few sort of municipal buildings and schools that were um, clearly places for people to go if they needed help. You know, those still had power. But other than that, you saw, you know, full apartment buildings that were just pitch black. And still, there wasn't a lot of um, sort of obvious damage there. Um, But as we got out of the city and traveled northwest to the real uh, epicenter of the earthquake, you could see some more damage to buildings um, and especially to the roads where in some places there were pretty major cracks in in the asphalt. Eventually, we made our way um, to where we are now, which is a, it's a facility that's normally used by Turkey's um, 
disaster and emergency relief organization um, where not only the Israeli aid delegations, but a few other countries are also setting up for the night. Um, the idea is basically that tonight we're going to bed down here and then sort of regroup and they'll do some assessments in the morning in order to determine where to send different search and rescue teams. And then they'll begin setting up a field clinic to provide uh, medical care to Turks who need it. But we should have a better sense of things in the morning. We thank Judah for that. Please check out the Times of Israel website for more updates from Judah on the ground in Turkey. We'll go to a short break now. And when we're back, we'll turn to Carrie and Jeremy and hear about what's happening in Israel. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their, like, blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Jeremy, turning to you, yesterday the High Court of Justice issued a sharp rebuke of the government's recent request for yet another delay, the ninth, I believe, in the court's order to evacuate the illegal Khan al-Ahmar Bedouin encampment in the West Bank. Now, this is an ongoing case that we've discussed several times in the past on the podcast in which the Bedouin camp of Khan al-Ahmar was ruled illegal by the court and slated for evacuation and demolition in 2018. For those who don't know, the camp is located just off the main highway that leads from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea between the settlement city of Malay Adumim and the Almog Junction that we discussed yesterday on the podcast. What is so, to me, I don't know, counterintuitive here is that the right-wing government is asking for yet another delay and the allegedly left-wing court is saying, no, you must uproot these 200 Bedouin and move them. So, Jeremy, weigh in here. Shed some light. So, yeah, this is within the dynamic of what's happening in Israeli, Israeli society and politics right now. This is an incredibly interesting ruling. Regarding the issue of Khan al-Akhmar itself, the reason why this is such a sensitive issue for the government is that in all likelihood, moving a, a forcibly moving a population in an occupied territory, which is how the uh, uh, Israel's control of the West Bank is defined, it could amount to a war crime. And therefore, uh, the European Union and the UN and other international bodies have expressed extreme concern about uh, Israel doing that. 
and 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 that's why the government and, and previous governments going back four years and uh, have been so so sensitive and so reluctant to actually carry out this this demolition. But I think there's something more. There's a couple of more interesting aspects to this ruling. Like you said, right now we've got a government which is trying to very much restrain the power of the High Court, and uh, because it says it's, it acts in in a, in a political manner in, in accordance with what the government, the current government says, is the court's liberal perspective on Israeli life and Israeli society. But here the court is enforcing a, a right-wing policy agenda and position pushed by a right-wing uh, pro-settlements organization. And this is not the only example of such rulings by the court. Last year, the High Court ruled that a settlement which originally was slated to be demolished, the, the court ruled that that settlement, Mitzpeh Karamim, should be left intact and did not have to be demolished by the state. And then in another major ruling, the government, the previous government, the Bennett-Lapid coalition, wanted to appoint, uh, make a senior appointment during the interim period of the government after, after the Knesset had already been dissolved and elections called. And the High Court ruled that the government could not make that appointment. And in fact, it, it ruled against the explicit position of the Attorney General, which is very unusual. And so we see that, despite the, the many allegations by the current coalition parties, the, the court has been, is more balanced than, than perhaps it, its reputation is. And, and obviously now we have the, the, the new Khan al-Akhma ruling. And this is kind of ironic because the, the right-wing government, or Netanyahu, who, as I said, is, is sensitive to the concern of the international community about removing these Bedouin residents of Khan al-Akhmar, he requested this delay from the, from the High Court. To, he requested that delay in, so he could get more time to examine exactly what the policy is, while the, the more right-wing members of his government were saying, you have, to, you have to, to remove Khan al-Akhmar right now. But Netanyahu was relying on the court to restrain that. And on the flip side, you have this right-wing organization, Regavim, which has been using the High Court to advance its agenda, despite the general position on the right wing that the court is too, too powerful. So that's, that's one aspect of what makes that recent decision uh, by, the, by the court so interesting. Okay, Jeremy, thank you for that. Carrie, just to uh, end up with you, thank you so much for your patience. There's so much to choose from on your beat, the judicial overhaul, party intrigue, but let's begin with bits and bobs of legislation <laughs> that is starting to form in the Knesset's halls. Yeah, so let's just be very clear. The Knesset has a very clear center of gravity right now, and it's all rotating around judicial reform, which actually just entered into committee voting this morning. That's a necessary step in order to bring it to the plenum, um, where it will have two series of votes. The first series of votes they hope will happen already coming Monday. Um, so judicial reform, let's just quickly review what's going on there because it's a little bit different than what we've reported. They've trimmed it down for this first reading. They will only be voting on changes to the Judicial Selection Committee, meaning how the government appoints Israel's judges, and making it impossible for any court to challenge basic laws, which are basically Israel's quasi-constitutional substitute for the fact that we never actually wrote a constitution. And they're basically saying the courts cannot evaluate these laws, which will be passed by the Knesset. This might sound a little bit familiar to people who live in a country with a constitution, but let us just remind listeners that basic laws can be passed with a simple majority of 61 members of Knesset, um, and some have been passed in the past with even fewer. So these are not really... Um, laws that have gone through any sort of real special status, despite the fact that we attribute it to them. That being said, what else is going on in the Knesset? Um, there were a couple of bills that were 
already submitted but have not yet come up for vote, which kind of will tie back to some of the judicial reform's critics, political criticisms about this whole process. One is a bill that would reinstate um, fired Minister Arya Derry by making it impossible for the court to interfere in political appointments unless they um, are somehow touching on eligibility requirements. Let's also remind listeners that this coalition changed the eligibility requirements such that Derry could become a minister in the first place, despite his recent tax fraud convictions. So this is a very, very targeted bill that would be attempting to, once again, put recently convicted uh, former minister Arya Derry into positions of power where he would hold um, two of the government's largest budgets, despite, again, multiple tax fraud convictions. My multiple financial offense convictions. His first conviction was for bribery. Um, and that was, uh, back in the, in, in 1999, I believe. Um, the second bill that's being discussed as well is one that would kind of kosher, uh, donations to politicians to help pay for legal and medical expenses. One reason that this is especially pressing is that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is slated to return about a $270,000 gift he received from his late cousin to pay for legal expenses, the court ruled he needs to return that as an inappropriate political gift. Um, And this bill would basically make it possible for Netanyahu to hold on to that cash. Um, So those are the big bills that are kind of being discussed. Again, just need to emphasize this. Really, the, the mass is on judicial reform. That is where the weight of the Knesset is firmly centered right now. In addition to what's going on in the Knesset itself, the legislative plenum, there's been a little bit of political drama in Likud that came to a bit of a resolution last night. Now, we have to remember the Knesset, um, it's a 120-member body. The coalition currently holds a narrow 64-seat majority in it. That means that four members of the coalition can hold up legislation. This is especially relevant in a party like Likud, which has a 32-seat faction, and also little sub-factions within Likud that we don't always speak about enough. Um, but there are different alliances with Likud. There are certain influential members of Knesset who kind of have votes tied to them. And one of them is uh, lawmaker Dudi Amsalem. Amsalem, if you remember, pressed really hard to be justice minister. Of course, that position was given to uh, Netanyahu's closest ally in the party, Yuri Levin. And uh, Amsalem also really wanted to be Speaker of the Knesset. That position was given to another Netanyahu confidant, Amir Ohana. Um, and so Amsalem sat out of the government and uh, threatened to make trouble and has been kind of this this uh, stress point for Netanyahu uh, for his legislative uh, pushes. And last night they came to a resolution. Amsalem will be a second minister in the justice ministry. This is a man who's been highly critical of the Supreme Court, has accused it of being racist against Jews of uh, Mizrahi origin, like he is himself, um, has really publicly criticized the Supreme Court president, Esther Hayut, has also... Uh, submitted bills in the past to put uh, government control firmly over judicial appointments. And so he might be a, he will be a second minister within the justice ministry. In addition, he will also be the minister for regional cooperation. He will take over the role of the minister that liaises between the government and the Knesset all to solve an internal political dispute within the Likud party itself. Carrie, what does it mean that he'll be a second minister, meaning he'll be a deputy minister or he'll be a co-minister? No, he'll he'll be a second independent minister. He will not be the justice minister, but the Israeli government um, has long had this 
uh, mechanism and, and actually formalized it as a permanent mechanism um, back in December that they could appoint a second minister within an existing ministry. Um, so there's likely to be some butting heads here within the, the justice ministry, but um, at least both of the ministers are from the Likud party. So ultimately, uh, one can assume Netanyahu will have a firm hand on things. Fascinating. Thank you for this look behind the scenes, drawing back the curtain on this weird soap opera that we call the Knesset. Thank you so much for joining me, Jeremy and Carrie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.